Live from the Talking Joe Studios. It's Talking Joe. Talking Joe Weekly Podcast. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe thought we would last. Talking Joe is there. Find each other like a married couple. Our podcast on the air. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe is the codename for a completely untrained special podcast force. Its purpose, to produce a regular comic review show while breaking and replacing a series of presenters from across the world. Talking Joe. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe. We are on our soapbox. Nobody seems to care. Fighting for fandom wherever there's trouble But the podcast's on the air Talking Joe is there Talking Joe Talking Joe Talking Joe is on the air Hey, 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 it's me, Mark, a.k.a. The Funky Bunch, a.k.a. The Jingle VIP. So this is episode 110 of Talking Joe, and we may be short of a chief, but I have promoted myself to the captain of the good ship Talking Joe. But I'm not doing it alone, because we have got a new fellow traveller on our voyage. I went a bit more nautical than I expected here, but let's keep it going. Whoa, Nelly, who's the co-presenter on the show today? We'll find out in just a minute. It's a beautiful day to have a guest. Time to talk to one of the best. Is he broken? Ooh, can he be broken? We've had Ben, Chris and S-Job too. A few episodes in, away they flew. Broken. Oh, so broken. We've always wanted to have a guest. Just like you, like the Queen will ask. And what do you do? So let's make the most of this communique. Sorry to say it is for no pay. Hope he's good, but not too good. This I command, Serpentor. Come on, guys, eat mince pies. Let's meet the co-presenter. It's my new co-host. It's Tim Finn. Hi, Mark. Hi, everyone. I guess you can call me the new anchor. <laughs> Get it? Nautical? It's, it's not because you're dropping the, the W from the normal nickname. <laughs> um, or, or I could, I could be the, uh, maybe you should be the Admiral. Maybe you should be the fleet Admiral and I should be the, the well, I shouldn't be the captain. Um, yeah, I think you're going to get hung, hung up on, on official titles and, <laughs> and ranks here and, uh, and I'm going to sh- show up my knowledge uh, or lack of. Um, yeah, but I think uh, somewhere, somewhere along this, uh, on this journey that we're on, we'll have to come up with a, a nickname for, for you, uh, as is uh, the course for this show, unless you've got one that is ready, fresh, out of the box, ready to go. I wish I did. Uh, you know, I mean, my, my name is Timothy, so Tim already is the nickname, but I, I know you mean a fun uh, or funny nickname, and I, I, don't, I don't have that. Funnier than Timothy. Uh, <laughs> I think for Googling purposes, we, we can leave Timothy out of it. <laughs> Maybe I'll just refer to you as Timothy when, you, when you've been naughty. Well, there, there is, there is a Tim Finn. There is a famous musician named Tim Finn. And I, I, when I tell people about Googling me, I say, you have to include the word comic or GI Joe <laughs> or animation. Cause otherwise it would be a crowded house in those Google search results. Yeah. I, I would tear all my hair out and I would just have split ends. <laughs> very, very good. So 
Obviously, this isn't your first time on the show. We did a Talking Joe uh, interview with you uh, where we talked about all things Joe and in specifically uh, your book project. But uh, for those of us who have either got very short memories or haven't listened to that particular episode, why don't you give us uh, the 101 and uh, break it down? Who are you uh, and what you're up to and what is your connection to G.I. Joe? I teach animation history at Leslie University, uh, right outside of Boston, Massachusetts, in the States. I own a comic book store, a brick and mortar shop called Hub Comics. Uh, that's also right outside of Boston, a mile outside of Boston. Um, and I am researching and writing the definitive history of the real American hero iteration of G.I. Joe. It's called A Real American Book, and uh, this is my 20th year. Uh, it's taking a long time because I have those other jobs, but also I'm being thorough, and I have conducted over 270 interviews with toy, comic book, animation, advertising, and film people, and uh, it's a coffee table book, so it's not just quotations from the interviews it's also uh, images of things you've never seen like mm. prototypes or office memos or sketches before the final artwork uh, and since you can't read the book yet because it's not done you can find me and read all about it and see things that won't fit in the book at my website arealamericanbook.com i'm also at arealamericanbook on instagram and very occasionally twitter and facebook very good and, and it's going to be a shift to the dynamic of the show, because typically, as little as I know about G.I. Joe, I, I tend to, to be more knowledgeable than, than Chief, whereas I think I'm just going to be left for dust <laughs> behind your, your knowledge. So I will try my best to keep up. But uh, yeah, speaking of your, your blog, you've done some pretty cool updates and, and dropped them in the, in the last week or two over on uh, over on the blog and also on your Instagram page. So do you want to talk about those a little bit? Because, yeah, they, they're pretty cool stuff. We, uh, we There was a Sergeant Slaughter image and, and also a sort of a Captain America-style Joe that uh, was uh, the sort of the pre-production concept art that never, never made it to a release. Sure. Um, so the, the figures at Hasbro, uh, you know, someone like Ron Rudat or Ron Rudat would... Uh, sketch, a, sketch a bunch of figures and do all these different versions. And then several other people in R&D, research and design, and also marketing, they'd pin them up on the wall and they'd start to mix and match. Like, okay, use that that belt with these, those knee pads. And then Rudat would uh, draw another one, photocopy them, and do a bunch of different color versions with marker. And then uh, it's, well, we like this version with the red, but maybe with this blue. And then before the artwork uh, was sculpted, uh, someone outside of Hasbro, like Dave Dorman, who's known for his Star Wars paintings, or George Woodbridge, who's known for his military illustrations and also Mad Magazine, would uh, usually paint, but sometimes draw, a big presentation piece on illustration board. So like two feet by two and a half feet. This is not artwork that we, the consumer, would see. This was not the package painting that's separate and later. This was just so that R&D and marketing could pitch each character to the vice presidents for final approval because a marker drawing or a sculpt out of wax that's all one color or the turnaround, the front side back view, 
um, sort of wasn't enough in capturing the sort of fantasy and personality of a character. And, uh, you know, if you Google, say, Dave Dorman, G.I. Joe, you mm -hmm. might see some paintings that he did in other categories, but he published some sketchbooks of these specific paintings. So I have a few and I have photocopies of a few. So uh, occasionally on my blog, I have posted one of these images and a week or two ago, it was George Woodbridge, his presentation. This one's a drawing, not quite a painting of uh, version three of Sergeant Slaughter, the driver for the Warthog. And yeah. uh, it, they usually have just a little indication of background. They often have the character's name and sort of a stencil and again, this, this, this physical object was brought out in a line review at Hasbro in Pawtucket in Rhode Island. And this was the sort of big visual that would help um, the, the higher ups and the, the head of the company give a thumbs up or thumbs down to a character. Uh, and then the other, this one I blogged about a few years ago, but the Instagram is catching up with the blog. So this one, <laughs> this one was on my Instagram uh, a week ago. Kurt Groen, who was the not the figure designer right after Ron Rudat, but he was the major figure designer after Ron Rudat. He was designing the uh, sort of uh, supplemental line called X-Soldiers, which yes, is supposed to sound like X-Men and X-Force <laughs> around, around uh, 94, uh, 93, 94. And this would have been, had the line not been moved from Rhode Island to Cincinnati, from Hasbro to Kenner, right? Had we not lost Real American Hero and gained G.I. Joe Extreme, there was going to be a second line of G.I. Joe superheroes called X-Soldiers. Oh, wow. So this would be like, this would be like a sub-team, like Mega Marines or that kind of thing. Yes, yes. It is not clear to me how separate the, the packaging, you know, branding would have been if it would have been, you know, X-Soldiers in giant letters and G.I. Joe in very small letters, or if it would have been, you know, G.I. Joe, X-Soldiers. And so uh, this character, uh, he, he basically looks like sort of halfway between Captain America and the Rob Liefeld redesign of Fighting American, which is to yeah. say Captain America in white. Uh, and this guy, he's got, he's got the sort of head, headgear that uh, Gambit or um, Hawk version three has. He has a round shield. He's in red, white, and blue. He's got big muscles. He's got shoulder pads. And uh, this illustration, it's on a big piece of black illustration board. There was going to be a guy who looks a little bit like Spawn. There was going to be a guy who looks a little bit like uh, a Soriyama painting. who's all chrome, um, sort of a smooth, like Silver Surfer type on rollerblades. There was going to be uh, a villain sort of in a, in a, like a rocky villain with a, uh, like a hood who had, I don't know, smoke or lava coming out of his shoulders. Definitely aiming at the crowd uh, who were watching the X-Men cartoon in 95, reading X-Men comics and, and buying the Toy Biz uh, X-Men toys. Um, something that I mm, yeah. may, may not ever post on the blog because it's going to be a photograph in my book is I have the prototype of the figure, the mock-up, right. which is one of the Kenner animated Batman figures with his bat ears sanded off. <laughs> uh, but you, you can tell from the from the smoothness of the character that that's where it's from. And he's been painted in red, white, and blue. And he's got, you know, some custom hair because this guy's a blonde the way that, you know, Gambit and Hawk have their hair spilling out of their, their oh, headgear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the, the point of the blog is to show you things that um, either uh, won't fit in the book because my collection and research spread out further than a finite book 
or to tease things that'll be in the book. Yeah, this guy's wild. He's, he's like, you know, Captain America, extreme to the max, cowabunga. You know, he's got uh, crazy uh, American flag shoulder pads and stuff. It is, it is, you know, right out of uh, an image, you know, one of the image kind of superhero team books of the 90s, isn't it? Or even Marvel, where they were doing some quite out there designs with, uh, for example, their Thor and stuff. Uh, so, yeah. Very interesting to see, and is is the some of those those designs that uh, that you were just talking about about this this sub team are they are they all under uh, under wraps or is this stuff that is is publicly known and out there on the interwebs uh, already? Um, let's see. So uh, Joe Declassified, I think, in one of their PDF issues, has reproduced small uh, reproductions of. Some of these, and I think Dan Klingensmith, in his uh, creating GI Joe book series, I think he has shown a few. I have high quality scans of all of them because mm-hmm. I because I have them. <laughs> Very good, cool. And uh, what else is happening in the world? So I know. Well, I've heard from you know Pathé News or whatever the sources we get over here in uh, Blighty that uh, there's lots of snow going on in America. Is has the snow hit hit you? I heard it was gonna going to hit Boston in a big way. We had some five days ago and we're getting some tonight or tomorrow. Uh, But fingers crossed, it's been a mild winter so far in terms of temperature and snowfall. Okay. So it's not hit hit as big as they they were fearing it might. You just have like 385 days of rain every year, right? <laughs> 385. Yeah. It feels like it. <laughs> I've, I've been to London two or three times and, uh, it's just never sunny and gorgeous. It's just always, I just always feel sad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. Are you ready to talk some comics? I'm always ready to talk some comics. Good stuff. Let's do it. Comic talk. Oh, comic talk. Larry Hammer writes them. Tim and Mark discuss them. Whoa. Comic talk. Oh, comic talk. Larry Hammer writes them. Tim and Mark discuss them. Whoa. So today we are going to be uh, we, we we're going to be cleansing our palate of uh, snake hunt because we've uh, spent the last I think four episodes me and Chief talking about uh, snake hunt and uh, unfortunately I think snake hunt broke Chief so it's uh, good to get uh, past that and uh, get onto something that uh, I think we can uh, we can find a bit more inclusion about people in, enjoying but let's uh, let's move on to GI Joe issue two hundred and seventy six which is the first part of the untold tales. Uh, maybe arc isn't the right word, but uh, a few issues, which are, which are essentially one and dones uh, in between uh, the, the, the main story con- continuing. Creative team, we have got Larry Hammer, as always, on, on uh, the words. Nitho Diaz is the artist. Inks, Jagdish Kumar. Colors, Jay Brown, as always. Letters, Neil Uteke. uh, And from editorial, senior editor, Tom Waltz. Editor, Megan Brown. And Diana Davis continues her credited role as research assistant. Um, So let's look at the covers. So you've got uh, got all three covers actually in front of you in, in person. Is that right? Yes, with three of my fingers, I'm touching all of them at the moment. <laughs> okay, let's let's have a look th- through them. And is um, 
uh, we we started this uh, chat off off the air, but would you typically buy uh, the the variant covers or own the variant covers? I have strong feelings about variant covers. Unfortunately, uh, all of the publishers have backed themselves into a short-sighted corner where they need variant covers uh, to publish, to survive. Mm. Um, some publishers are, are particularly egregious at this, and other publishers are just uh, worryingly annoying at this. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it's basic math. If you if you're going to sell, you know, three thousand copies of a comic, and you're not going to make enough money, and for very little money, you can hire one artist to draw mm. an additional image. The way that printing works now, it's very easy to print the guts of the comic, to change a few things, and to print a different cover and to uh, connect that. And mm -hmm. then all of a sudden, your orders go up by you know, a thousand or 2000, maybe they double, maybe it's a, you know, a special issue, a first issue, fancy artists, they, they double or triple. Um, suddenly you're not just making money, you're making a lot of money. I don't like that because I'm less interested in comic books as objects and much more interested in them as stories. I certainly mm -hmm. want beautiful objects in boxes and on my shelves, but I, I'm not interested in variant covers. Also artistically, if we think back to something like G.I. Joe number one in 1982, or, you know, uh, uh, Action Comics number one in 1938, first yep. appearance of Superman, these images are iconic. Mm -hmm. If they had, at the time, been published with two or three variants, and then three or five or 20 retailer variants, mm -hmm. any one of those images would sort of be reproduced less and would yeah. over time accumulate less power mm -hmm. and would not attain iconic status. So when I think back to issue, whatever, you know, 220 at GI Joe, it takes me a moment to remember what the cover is because there mm -hmm. were five of them or three yeah, of them. Yeah. Um, so as a reader and as a retailer, I do not pay attention to or order variant covers. The two exceptions are IDW Transformers and IDW GI Joe because I am voting with my dollars and I want these books to stick around. I very much want GI Joe uh, to stick around. In the final year of the Marvel run, I started buying two copies of every issue. Oh wow. Cuz I thought, you know, if everyone did that, the book could, you know, would continue indefinitely. And, <laughs> I don't know if everyone else got the memo. <laughs> uh, I I did not tell anyone else, but uh, I should have. Um, and ordering ordering the variants for GI Joe. Anyway, so yes, I have cover A, cover B, and the uh, retailer incentive cover in front of me. And did, did you sorry say as as a retailer, do you tend to 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 shun the variant, or is or is it part of uh, is it part of your sort of bread and butter really of of that you do have to get them in and and play the game. Uh, we don't play the game, and our customers don't ask. We we're not that kind of store. There, mm -hmm. you know, there are stores where, you know, I know a retailer in California who has a store that's across the street from a middle school and down the street from, I think, a high school, and mm -hmm. he sells a lot of Batman, like the new issue of Batman every month. And right. I like Batman, and I want to read the new issue of Batman. We don't sell a lot of Batman at my store, but we okay. do sell a lot of, you know, like the new. You know Jaime Hernandez Love and Rockets graphic novel. Uh -huh. A uh, a slightly more discerning uh, customer of <laughs> highbrow tastes. Uh, I don't want to use either of those words, but, <laughs> uh, but you know we're we're in a college town. Um, we do have kids. Uh, we do have superhero uh, readers. We have fanboy readers. I count myself as a fanboy. I go to the websites every day. I'm I'm reading X Men, but um, 
I don't want to worry about that stuff because yeah. it takes a lot of energy uh, to sort through. So, you know, if every, if every publisher publishes two of the same thing, it's twice as much work for my manager and I mm -hmm. to place mm -hmm. an order. And then a month later, someone says, oh, I need this issue of Ninja Turtles. Can you get me the B cover? And let's say the B cover is now sold out, but we can still order the A cover. Mm -hmm. uh, so now we have to deliver some bad news to our customer and they have to make a judgment call. Maybe they're not going to buy it at all. Although the comic is still available. Don't, don't, when you, don't you want to read the story? Like, well, but I wanted the, <laughs> I wanted the you know, the Sophie yeah. Campbell cover, not uh, the Eastman cover, not the Campbell cover. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much on the, on the same page. I, well, it, apart from, I do not buy the, uh, buy the variants, but as a general principle, I don't know that I have ever bought a variant cover. Um, certainly if I have, it wouldn't be more than, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the number of fingers on, on, on a hand. It, and actually the variant covers for me have essentially driven me away from buying, uh, floppy comics, even to the degree, the degree of me thinking, should I stop buying GI Joe as a monthly comic? Because when you buy the trade, they stick in all of the, uh, they stick in all of the variants as extras in the, in the back of the book. So it then doesn't become a choice of which one do you lose out as a physical, you know, object in your in your collection. So yeah, I am not really a fan of uh, the the variant, in particularly in in terms of how you have to make a choice of you know which one you you get. And I don't actually, you know, make the choice. I uh, I just typically will get whichever the <laughs> whichever has been stuck into my pull box, which is uh, generally the. Uh, the, the cover a so so I'm, I'm appreciative when for example in the back of the idw book they'll say next issue and have the big full page uh of the variant because then i'll at least have it in my collection somewhere without having to buy it as a separate uh, a separate cover mark you should definitely not stop buying the monthly gi <laughs> joe comic in favor of the collections probably you should do both yeah, no, I'll I'll uh, I'll I'll bind uh, I'll bind it and um, yeah, may, maybe stick it in as a as an extra in the back of the the bind or something along those uh, those lines. But there we go. That that's the rant on the on the on the on the vision uh, of of covers as a whole. What is the actual covers looking like? So the cover A is Nitho Diaz. It's got uh, the the heroes of the issue apparently smashing through a window and, and tearing in through some curtains or something. Uh, we've got uh, Snake Eyes, aka Fake Eyes, aka Throwdown, aka Sean. Um, we've oh no, actually, good, good grief, we don't. It's it's the real Snake Eyes, aka uh, the uh, Silent Master, aka uh, you know file file name unknown. Snake along with Scarlet and torpedo and uh stalker so so some of larry's very favorite characters making their way into this issue and onto the uh cover it's yeah a dynamic image from uh nitho uh i the, the coloring is looking quite muddy unfortunately which i think uh is letting it down somewhat yeah this was actually my first comment um the colors are by um tom b long whose whose name we see in a few idw books and i actually i could be wrong here i sort of thought he was a letterer but oh wow uh, uh but in either case he's not someone who has colored gi joe much if ever and what's the first time i saw this image several months ago online the first thing i thought was oh too much k and in printing 
there are four colors of ink, right? There's there's cyan, there's yellow, there's magenta, and there's black. Black is called you know, C M Y K. Black is called K because it's the key plate in printing. And in Photoshop, when you color, if you use a lot of black, if you mix a lot of K into your colors, they get dark, but they also can get muddy. And the fact that this shows up both on my screen when it's going to be an RGB file, right, and also uh, CMYK as a as a physical object on paper as a as a hard copy mm. quote file, it's it's too dark in both of those. And you know, if you squint, Snake Eyes and the background uh, and Scarlet sort of become one big shape, and all the detail in Stalker's um, arms uh, sort of drops out. Mm. Um, so this is, I think, Diaz's artwork benefits from, from less color. And an example of this is the, his cover to the upcoming reprint of yearbook number one, mm -hmm. where he's kind of redrawing the Michael Golden cover to yearbook yeah. number one. And Diaz, I think on purpose, draws it with less detail because it's a, quote, retro image or because he's mm -hmm. sort of aping Michael Golden's, quote, animated style. And the colors, so there's less... Um, very small uh, line hatching uh, detail in that image. And the colors are closer to flat. And that image pops really nicely. Yeah. This, this image on G.I. Joe 276, right? There's a ton of broken glass on the left and there's all the smoke on the, on the bottom right. And the smoke is made up of three or four colors. And then the black mm -hmm. lines of the smoke have been dropped out as light blue. Yeah. Um, it's, it's quite busy. And I think it, it wants um, a lighter touch. Yeah, and I, I actually I called it up on my my screen as well to see how it looked on a monitor rather than a, as a physical object, and it does actually look quite a lot lighter. Particularly Snake Eyes, there's a lot more grey and blue rather than the sort of the muddier uh, black and and very dark blue. So so I I do wonder whether there has been a bit of an issue with reproduction that that. Um, the printed image hasn't quite come out the way that uh, that the colorist had intended. Actually, Torpedo's face there as well. He's he's looking quite. It's quite, kind of a quite dark, sort of I guess pinky on the printed image, and and um, in the on the, my screen it is looking more like a a skin tone. So so yeah, I, I I do wonder whether there there is something about that going on on, on this one particularly. I want to I want to state that Diaz can sure draw the hell out of everything, which I really appreciate. <laughs> and you know, in the GI Joe comic, we've had different sort of eras of style, and it's it's not as simple as more detail and less detail. But without mm -hmm. getting into it, we could say more detail, less detail. And Diaz, his poses are dynamic, his expressions are evocative, and he has a lot of detail. And it's really exciting because oftentimes GI Joe has not looked like sort of the hot Marvel book yeah. or now, nowadays the hot slick DC book. And with D, under Diaz's hand, it does, which is really yeah, exciting. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's some traditionalists who want it to look much more like say Ron Wagner. And I totally dig that. Um, I think where Diaz, again, let's say comparing it to his cover for the upcoming yearbook number one reprint, just to the right of Stalker's eye are some leaves. Because I think in the mm. there's a little bit of space between Stalker and Torpedo, there's like a potted plant, and <laughs> like great, oh we don't we don't we don't we don't need that. And then yep. just under um, Torpedo's left bicep is a a round shape, and I don't I can't tell what it is. 
I'm guessing a vase or something. So I I understand that they're breaking into some kind of room. It's a, it's a fancy room in a mansion or it's an art gallery. Can't quite tell or a museum. Mm -hmm. Um, I understand that there should be things besides just like rectangles on the wall for framed artwork or mirrors or windows. But you know, again, sometimes less is more. Yeah. Good spot. Um, less is more actually is a nice uh, transition to uh, Brian Shearer's cover yep. uh, for cover B. Shearer draws in something, I think some people would call it more of a quote animated style uh, mm-hmm. where he's drawing less detail and he's he's trading more in the larger forms of, of muscle mass mm-hmm. and, and like the larger shapes of you know a vehicle or like a tree. Um, he also colors it. And he uses a mute. He uses a muted palette, which comes across really nicely. You know, except for a little bit of this yellow behind the characters on the horizon. Um, nothing's bright in this cover. Not even the whites of their eyes. Not even the the metallic of the sword or the throwing stars on Scarlet's mm-hmm. arm. Shearer also does something which I really appreciate in all comics art. Um, he very, very, very slightly cartoons his characters. Right. So Scarlet's eyes are a little bit bigger than realistic to make them more evocative. Stalker's eyes are a little smaller. Um, Stalker and Torpedo have different actual facial structures, differently shaped eyes, nose, mouth. And uh, and then we have this uh, sort of bold compositional device where something is in the extreme foreground. Right. These two hands up on the top. In cuffs. Yeah. Yes. And they're knocked out. Um, in dark blue so they don't distract mm-hmm. too much you sort of don't see them until you you notice them yeah Shearer, brian Shearer, i don't i don't know if he uh i don't know if if the artist rick burchett uh with a with a b rick burchett um who's best known for a lot of the quote animated batman comics yeah sure um, both both penciling inking and also inking others i don't know if Shearer uh thinks of burchett as a as someone whose style he looks to um, but I, I feel like they're in a similar category. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that feels old school where um, a lot of the sort of open sections of like shirt or pants are left to the colorist to sort of fill in. And there's less mm-hmm. work done mm-hmm. with like lots of inking or lots of hatching. I get it. I'm not necessarily such a, a fan of this this one, but uh, I, I do get all the points uh, that, that you're saying. I'm not sure I like the uh, the bunching of uh, the lines around um, Scarlet's <laughs> crotch there. Um, I'm not. I think the 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 visor angle on on Snake Eyes is a little bit wonky, but um, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's not bad all in. Then we've got uh, John Royal continuing his long uh, run as a variant artist on GI Joe with an image of torpedo in the water flanked by Snake Eyes and Scarlet with sort of in yeah a rain, rainy, rainy uh, choppy water and uh, parachutes sort of descending behind them. And yeah, colours by one of his uh, frequent uh, collaborators, James Offendi. Um, again, quite a lot of uh, heavy lifting done, done often by uh, John's uh, colourist. J- James, sorry, James Afraidy, if I can... <laughs> Afraidy, yes, I'm afraidy. I pronounced that wrong. <laughs> um, so I, I'm always, I'm always a little, not to push anyone out who's already drawing an issue, but you know, after the GI Joe Danger Girl crossover miniseries, 
uh, I I so want to see John Royal just draw an issue of GI Joe. And yeah, 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 yeah. There are plenty of artists. You know, you make more money if you draw covers, right? Covers pay better than pages. Covers are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to say easier to draw than pages because it's a different battle, um, but they can be quicker, and and certainly they're they're sexier and you get more attention for them. Um, yeah, you know, like John Royal has established he can draw interiors and he can draw GI Joe interiors. I would love to see him draw a full issue of GI Joe. I like uh, separate from um, how clearly his work looks like J. Scott Campbell, and separate from how his work for G.I. Joe seems to refer to the cartoon as much as it does the toy or the comic. I I always appreciate with his covers how uh, how animated they are, how mm. there's so much kinetic and potential energy in these poses, um, in, in like flame and explosions and bullets hitting the ground and wind and rain it's all very very energetic yeah um like he's he's not drawing a lot of calm moments even when it's just like the baroness and destro in a cool badass pose it's it's very even though they're not really moving they're not lunging there's a lot of snap mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and um i don't know that we've ever seen torpedo in such a badass pose <laughs> Like, Indeed, yeah. like a, a Navy SEAL, like they're the best of the best and they can physically do things that the rest of us can't. And uh, it's it's really cool. Like he's coming at us. He's ready. Uh, you know, like the, moving through this water isn't going to be easy because it's waist deep. It's nighttime. It's a storm. And then he's got, you know, two of the best shows um, behind him. You know, this is one of those covers where very briefly, when I was a kid, I would be disappointed when the cover of uh, G.I. Joe was an exaggeration of the inside. Mm-hmm. And sort of that scene didn't really happen. But I mm-hmm. understand that's the point of a cover, right? It, it asks a question and the inside answers it or it teases you to get you to buy it. This this image right here, uh, I, I would happily read the issue. <laughs> that, yeah, it's... That, it's something that me and Chief have discussed quite frequently of, of looking at the John Royal covers because while this one does have uh, the three characters that, that are on the on the cover do feature in the in the story, uh, they they don't have a parachute drop into uh, into water, um, uh, and so yeah, so so it is a, clearly not the the story that's happening in the in the interiors. But yeah, we we frequently have discussed. Um, where where we, you have the the random covers of, for example, you know, Snowjob being chased by uh, some some uh, foes on his uh, on his battle barrel or, or whatever that the, the, you think, crikey, that looks like you know being chucked into the middle of quite of an exciting and interesting story. Can can we ha- maybe have that one? <laughs> um, so so he he is very good at sort of conjuring up the idea that you're being kind of dropped into into the middle of quite an exciting story. So the colors on this John Royal cover um, by by James Afraidy, they are they are a kind of exaggeration, right? Because if you were, this is like midnight, mm-hmm. two in the morning on the beach, and there are no stars out and the moon is not out. So it actually wouldn't be this bright. This scene is lit almost as if there's like lightning that we can't see. Mm-hmm. Kind of nearby, yeah. There's a right? sort of a a halo of light, sort of all sort of creating a border all, all all around torpedo on the image, right? And and all the characters have highlights, not just that mm-hmm. halo, but they have highlights on their tops and 
uh, slightly darker tones sort of on their bottoms. And then the water right around Torpedo, that's not just like white foam because he's moving, that's like mm -hmm. specifically illuminated. And this I think is a really good use of active, busy, right? What if I'm if I was to frown, it's like too much color, it's it's too active. But I think it really works here. I actually I don't I don't necessarily want this cover to be sort of much more muted and much darker. I think the color agrees with the the sort of potential for violence, right? Like they're, they're, com <laughs> they're coming to get you, bad guy. Uh, and then beyond that, we've got some uh, intro. Well, yeah, we've got some further exclusive variants. We've got six one six one six comics and Simpleman comics exclusive variant A and B. And uh, I looked these up, and they mm. are uh, Cobra Forever covers from artist Hal Laren, and they are a homage to the Wu Tang Clan album Wu Tang Forever. And it was an exclusive to the six one six com the six one six comics dot com. Uh, the co cover A was limited to a thousand copies and priced at fourteen ninety nine. I mean, limited to a thousand. Given the the print run on this book, that's not that limited, is it? And cover B, uh, the Cobra desktop, was limited to five hundred comics and a steal at nineteen ninety nine. And if you wanted the two, you could pay twenty nine ninety nine. So one cents back off of your 30. I think generally uh, the cover should agree with the interior. Mm -hmm. and, and I have felt this way all along before the variant era and particularly uh, during, you know, during uh, the last 30 issues of G.I. Joe. If, you know, like it's an Arctic issue on the inside and John Royal draws like Zorana or whatever on mm -hmm. the cover, that's fun. I think that's confusing, right? And yeah. and like if I go to the store and I buy a Star Trek the original series DVD and it's got Captain Picard on it, <laughs> right? Like I only only in the crazy collector mentality of comic books would this be okay? Like if I go to a toy store or my local collectible shop and there's like a McFarlane Toys Spider uh, a Spawn action figure and the art on the side is of like Sam Keith's The Max. And it's like, oh, that's a variant. It's like, no, that's a mistake. That's, <laughs> that's confusing. So yeah. I think this Hal Lauren cover, uh, excuse me, Hal, Hal Laren cover could work great for an issue that's about Cobra. Mm -hmm. um, I also think that the, the trend of cover homages to like the John Byrne X-Men Days of Future Past composition or like the Joe Schuster action comics number one, you know, Superman, like throwing the the, the car uh, or album covers. Um, sorry, it's it's just silly. <laughs> like like GI Joe doesn't really have anything to do with Wu Tang Clan. Yeah. So I don't know what that you know. It's like once you start down this path, anything is fair game. It's cool. Why not do a Charles Schultz Peanuts pastiche and redraw? A Sunday like Charlie Brown and Snoopy strip with GI Joe characters. It's like well, sounds that's, good. That's, I'm on board. Well, that, okay, <laughs> that's fun as fan art on the internet. It's like oh, look at this thing that my friend did. But like on an official comic book, like eh, I don't. Yeah, see I think it. I think they had a very exhaustive and detailed thought process, which was that oh, Marvel did some hip hop covers, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. Let's do that. Uh, but anyway, so <laughs> let's uh, let's move on to what's happening. So I'll give a plot breakdown. 
In a flashback story, Scarlet, Snake Eyes, Torpedo and Stalker are dropped into Trucial Abysmia to capture a bad guy, Alpheus Huntsukar. The Joes meet their contacts, two female resistance fighters named Aman and Zara. The Joes split into two groups, the Snatch Team, who sneak into the compound via the sewer, and the Support Team, who go through the main gate in a captured BTR vehicle. They locate Huntzuka, and after a skirmish, a, the cornered villain pulls the pin on a grenade, intending to not go out alone. Zara tackles him, and they fall off the scaffolding to an explosive death. There we go. That's the issue in a nutshell. So, uh, yeah, I think this issue had a, an interesting kind of context in where G.I. Joe was. So it's coming straight after Snake Hunt. And we're going into these untold tales. So so generally sort of looking back at a point in the in the you know, previous untold history of uh, G.I. Joe. We've got a few issues uh, of this to, to come. And I think uh, what was done in, in part here was probably a palate cleanser for, for Larry to, to go back to a, an era of G.I. Joe that he was very comfortable with and, and uh, telling some stories from the past that he had some enthusiasm for. But I think it was also uh, acting as a, as a buffer. So uh, allowing some stories to be built up prior, prior to the ongoing continuity uh, continuing uh, with uh, the new art team, who I believe is Andrew Griffiths, if I'm remembering correctly. And uh, the timing of how this was done was in, was quite interesting as well, that the, uh, the, the scripts for 275, 276 and 277, I think, were written almost simultaneously and, and given to the artist to, to complete. So Nitho Diaz, uh, had completed this issue prior to uh, moving on to help out uh, Robert Aitkins finish up uh, the final part of uh, Snake Hunt in 275. And uh, Brian Shearer was well on the way to completing 277 as, as well at the, simultaneously uh, before we then... Uh, uh, and yeah, then there's a couple more issues uh, to, to go in this Untold Tales theme before the uh, the story proper starts up again in uh, Murder by Assassination, which uh, is in 281. So we've got 276, 7, 8, 9, 10. So that's uh, five issues of untold uh, tales before uh, the main plot uh, starts up again. Some of the things that struck me about the, the issue were the not so subtle ending so we got uh we got scarlet asking snake eyes to promise that if something like that happens again i uh, with the grenade that he won't do what zara did uh, so that's a quite on the nose uh, not so subtle premonition for snake eyes's eventual death in uh, issue 273 where zara and the doctor go out exactly like uh, Snake Eyes and uh, Serpentor. So uh, some foreshadowing after the fact happening uh, happening there. Sorry, did you just say 273? Did you mean uh, is it 217? You may have heard me say 273, but I'm certain that I said 213. Because <laughs> uh, as we know, nothing is ever wrong in the world of G.I. Joe. And did you spot the really super subtle detail uh, that that does point us towards issue two hundred and thirteen in the in the art. I uh, I did not, unless you mean 
Is it the composition on the second to last page? It's the very last page, the very last panel in Snake Eyes' visor, just as uh, as Scarlet's talking uh, to, to him about what had just happened. She says, Snake Eyes, promise me if something like that happens to me again, you won't do what Zara did. Last panel, promise me. And just to the right of that bubble, a reflection or sorts of lighting effect in Snake Eyes' visor makes out the numbers. Two, one, three. Oh, wow. Huh. Subtle, uh, eh? <laughs> uh, uh, good job. Good job. No, I, I think it was subtle because I didn't see it. I wouldn't blame you. I don't think I would have spotted that too unless unless I had uh, been doing some research and uh, and looking what people were saying about this issue. Um, yeah, that's right. Uh, that's That's... Super subtle, but uh, yeah, very clever, I think, and nicely done by by Diaz. That it, you know, it's it is just playing as a as the lighting in the, in the visor, and and uh, and it not being so on the nose that it's jarring and going. All oh, right, okay, they've just written the number two hundred and thirteen on the visor. Did you did you have any particular thoughts on on the issue? Anything that stood out for you? Yeah, I I love this kind of GI Joe story. Mm. Um whether it's a flashback or not, whether we get to see the original Snake Eyes or not, I think Hama is a great writer when he's when he's limited to 20 or 22 pages. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's keeping ultra-focused. I mean, my, my Desert Island comic series is actually G.I. Joe's special missions, not G.I. Joe. Mm, interesting. Because uh, freed from the ongoing... You know, soap opera, right? And and without having to always think about Cobra, Special Missions has a flexibility, right? In terms yeah. of who the who the bad guys are, and certainly what what good guys get used, right? Because the book's so crowded. But I, I mean, it's not just it's not just Hama. I think I think most writers in comics, I think all writers in comics should have to write a bunch of eight page stories, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and twenty or twenty two page stories, and learn the craft of the short story. And the editorial push around 2000, 2005 to quote, write for the trade, to write mm-hmm. longer stories where maybe you've got a cliffhanger every 20 pages. You know, as long as it's four or five or six or seven issue arcs, right? We're just going to make a book and who cares how satisfying any one chapter is. Um, I think Larry can write really satisfying single chapters when the chapter is all there is. Uh, I think this goes back to 86, 87 with Special Missions. This goes to the previous run of self-contained issues yeah, uh, with IDW. This even goes with the uh, Hasbro pack-in comics that he was writing around mm-hmm. uh, it was 2000, I forget, six. And, you know, some of those are like weird because it's like Falcon, <laughs> Falcon and uh, Nemesis, Nemesis Enforcer, Enforcer, right? Nemesis Enforcer, yeah. Um, so uh, I'm always up for this. You know, this this could happen. This doesn't need to happen after a, a ten chapter multi-part story. And I would certainly be happy if this was just an ongoing spinoff. Indeed, yeah. And and it's actually um, much like the special missions that happened bef- before. It's the Joes going up against a villain that is non-Cobra related. So actually, in the in the Stalker. Uh, special missions again they were going up against some terrorists there that uh, i think were you know nothing to do with uh, uh cobra at all so uh i, th- I think larry does uh, seem to uh, so enjoy that that 
that dynamic of it being, you know, having Joes or having Cobras, but not necessarily having them up against each other. So in this one, yeah, it's just, it's, uh, yeah, a diabolical mad scientist who's, who's, you know, trying to do his, uh, his thing and, and they're out to get him. And it's, and it's not that typical it, Cobra has to be in there somewhere. The other sort of larger idea that struck me here is that Hama is once again placing this story in the context of the real world, mm-hmm. right? I don't, I don't know my geography and my geopolitics well enough to sort of call out exactly who Hanzucker is in the real world, right? But um, you know, there's this, there's this line on page seven. Uh, Hansacker spearheaded the regime's poison gas program, supplying them with the means to wipe out whole villages of ethnic minorities, right? Even if you don't know history and you're not following the news, that rhymes, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Like, you know, Saddam Hussein gassed his own people. And then that you have these uh, freedom fighters in the form of uh, Aman and Zara, and you have sort of an American insertion team going into uh, to help you know, like, you know, G.I. Joe is a lot of, there, there is fantasy, there is sci-fi, there is not quite superhero, but G.I. Joe is a lot of things. But I think a lot of us respond to where it's grounded. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the grounding is Hama reading the news, reading books. And it's not quite like torn from the headlines, but, you know, these are realistic characters in realistic settings. And, you know, there are parts of the world where there are bad scientists and bad political leaders who are who are uh invading and and harming their own people yeah yeah and i guess you know the state of the world being it is you probably don't you probably don't have to you know hone in on one particular country for it to be the you know the the bad one that that larry hammer's being inspired by but you know right and uh, and then maybe maybe syria is is could be one of them but uh yeah it could be any number of uh, real world countries but because it's G.I. Joe, it's one of the Hama yeah, yeah, exactly. fic- fictional countries. But what what's something that did, did strike me was that there wasn't necessarily anything that explicitly states the time timeline of the story too much. Um, we've got Scoop in in the story, and and it refers to to him having proven himself uh, in a very hairy mission into Sierra Gordo. So so that would seem to be a a reference to Special Missions 23 from July 1989. But apart from that, there isn't anything too much that that dates it per, per se. So, And also, I'm not too sure that there's anything that necessarily places it as being th- that it needs to be Snake Eyes rather than uh, than the, the Sean Snake Eyes throwdown. That um, I don't know that there's any reason that this story would necessarily be told that differently. Uh, were it to be throw down rather than snake eyes, other than obviously the the payoff being that uh, that Scarlet is is kind of having a premonition of telling uh, telling snake eyes that if he's ever in a situation where he's got a a bad guy with a hand grenade that he doesn't throw himself to his death. The other sort of overall thing that hit me is that this is a story with scoop in it, and mm, yeah, uh, we don't see him very often, and. You know, he probably gets a bad rap. He's a lot of he's probably a lot of people's not favorite character. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I have a lot of affinity for him uh, for for several reasons. I think I think Hama uses him well. Um, it does appear that uh, Diaz is drawing the the version two 
toy costume okay. rather than the version one because the the original toy um and the, his appearance in the deke episodes scoop is wearing a green vest with yellow sleeves and in the in the the newer version of the toy he's very much wearing like a yellow shirt or jacket with a much smaller green uh like clip-on vest plate mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and it's a very small thing I think I think where artists have modernized. I don't know if it's an IDW decision or a Hasbro directive, but you know, Scarlet's Scarlet's wearing pants now. She's no longer wearing a bathing suit jumpsuit, <laughs> and I think that is a that I think that's the right thing to do because you know the the version of Scarlet from 1982 that's very Star Wars and James Bond. Mm -hmm. Scarlet should be wearing pants, sure. um, and so you slightly adapt sort of the color scheme so that she's wearing pants, right? Great. Um, and I know that artists sometimes sort of nowadays are loading up the Joes with more gear because uh, modern soldiers have a lot more gear than like the 1982, you know, lineup of the Joes who are, you know, just have like, you know, a shoulder strap and a grenade. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, um, it, I, I get the appeal for the, for the artists to go for, for the more modern designs and those subtle changes because they do they do typically look like they're more grounded in real life that you know where they've got a you know a difference in their color of their their top it you know it will look like it's a vest or you know a a, a flat jacket or, or or whatever that or you know something tactical that that it does see often it does kind of look a little bit more grounded in the kind of gear that someone might actually wear with you know some extra yeah like webbing detailing and that kind of uh thing so so i get where, where an artist is drawn to is drawn to drawing more detail that, that they'll go for those kind of looks but i totally I, I want these artists to not uh sort of run out of time at the end of the month drawing an issue like i don't want the final pages to have less detail because they run out of time i don't want <laughs> them to have to skip an issue so i am always fine with artists drawing a little less than a little more Mm -hmm. So the simpler versions of the costumes are okay with me. What what I was going to also say about Scoop is that the um, th that he's not so much a combat character, right? Like you know, you think of his toy. It's like well, he comes with this silly backpack and this giant video camera, and yep. um, and he and he's bright yellow and bright green, right? Like he's not <laughs> he's not. Cool. It's perfect yeah, cool. for a night night install. Uh, for, sorry, it's perfect for a night insertion, isn't it? The, the well, I mean, yellow. but but again, like gung ho doesn't gung ho shouldn't be in an Arctic mission, right? Like mm. so that that ship has sailed. Like we like we ha we just have to accept all of it, um, <laughs> because you know all of them would put on black clothing and like black face paint and black hats, um, or it, all of them would look like. Uh, torpedo on the cover of the variant right where they're all wearing uh wetsuits mm -hmm. but um uh what i like here is that uh scoop has this line which he goes back to like nobody wants me to do my job uh, <laughs> there, there is which is which is which is sort of the the meta um admission that this is not a cool character who didn't come with lots of awesome guns and that he's sort of saddled with this more uh, technical role, right? He's got a camera. He should be videotaping things, mm -hmm. right? So that it's not a nod to the to the fans and collectors, but it ends up being one. But what what's really happening here is that um, Hama gets to create a tension between Scoop, who wants to do his job as a combat uh, videographer, and 
uh, and Zara, uh, Aman and, and Zara, right? So you with a camera, no pictures, not while we are unmasked. They will take action against our families if we are identified, right? Yeah. That's a really powerful line, which which creates uh, tension and mm -hmm. and conflict, right? So it's not just like ha ha ha, scoops a loser. It's like <laughs> it's like oh no, actually, as a as a reader, I'm invested. Well, how is Scoop going to do his job, or is he gonna is he gonna make a compromise with these two uh, people they meet on the mission? Um, is he gonna get in trouble? Or is one of them gonna shoot his camera? Are they gonna get into a fight? That's really interesting to me, and it's that kind of. Um, small tension that Hama will often seed yeah. throughout his stories, which which keeps these stories from being easy, right? And then it happens, there's another one of them, uh, where is it? Uh, hold on, I'm looking at my notes. Uh, when when, um, when Scarlet refers to, um, she says, in, uh, she refers to the records division uh, the, the fire and yeah. the the fire and the records division in Fort Leonard in the 1970s, right? Like, this is totally fascinating, right? This fire in 1973 burned out of control for 22 hours, mm. and um, the story of how a bunch of employees in the days afterwards saved all of these uh, waterlogged um, uh, documents, right? These are these are like these are. Um, documents on the like discharge and service records of various um, uh, Air Force personnel, and yeah. um, it was, uh, so the so I, so I'm looking on the National Archives and uh, staffers from this office um, initially took all of these water damaged records in plastic milk crates to yeah. a temporary facility where um, drying racks were assembled. Uh, as, as spare shelving, and then someone figured out that um, McDonnell Douglas had a had a, a factory nearby, uh, which had vacuum drying facilities. Oh, wow. And so they changed the so they heated these room and they changed the pressure so the water got sucked out, and they saved all this paperwork. Mm. Um, and um, and then one last point: um, the investigation of the cause of the fire, uh, which started on the sixth floor of this building. Um, is undetermined yeah and, and so to read to you know to read it in in scarlet's view it's like well that's a convenient fire <laughs> exactly like, oh, your, your videotapes uh like yeah one person's gonna see them at the pentagon like our mission will or will not have been seen as helpful or important like we're just doing the job and you know the videotape's never going to be seen anyway it, it might be destroyed right that is a that is a pessimism which shows up in gi joe stories now and then mm -hmm. which i think is 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 the is the response to anyone who sort of not a fan assumes that it's all like silly patriotic super heroic like dumb action comics it's like no no there's there's pathos yeah it's it's the nice touch as well of, of digging into those those little uh historical nuggets like like the records uh the records fire that you know, is clearly quite a significant event. It's it destroyed 17 million uh, official military personnel files, and it sounds like it's kind of one of the go-to sort of things where you know, because of just the sheer sheer size of it, uh, there's a whole bunch of information that was lost and will and you know never be got you know come back. But you know, it's those little nuggets of of just 
throwing it into the story, into the conversations, uh, uh, and sort of just making it, it it sort of feel so much more, you know, grounded that uh, these are, you know, real world military people uh, on their on their missions. And if, you know, of course, they know this stuff. Uh, but you can only know it if the writer knows it too. Yeah, I uh, uh, a- Andrew Franks, who's one of the principals at at Boss Fight Studios, which makes action figures. Mm-hmm. Um, and Andrew's a a, uh, a GI Joe fan and designer. He worked he worked for Hasbro. Uh, Andrew made the point to me, and I think of this every month when I read GI Joe, and I'll probably say it every time we do an episode. <laughs> one of the reasons to read the GI Joe comic is because there is no comic like it on the newsstands. And I don't mean, oh, it's long running. It's up to issue 200 something. It hasn't started over at number one. And I don't mean, oh, the same guy's written it all this time. And I don't mean, oh, it's it started and ran for a long time. And then it came back and has run for a long time. Um, what I mean, and I don't mean, oh, it's based on a toy, but it's it's got like two or three generations of fans, kids and older folks, right? All those things are true and are noteworthy. What I mean is, um, it's a team book, but again, it's not just one team, it's a good guy team and a bad guy team, but then there's the secondary population, the vehicles, and then there's this added layer of, quote, realism, right, or, or grounded, right, there's planes and there's war, and then you have this writer who's working hard to, like we just mentioned, seed some small historical and geopolitical uh, notes into the into this just action comic that's ostensibly for kids, right? And then these artists who are working really hard to keep up with all of this reference. And um, like, you know, the best X-Men stories, the worst X-Men stories, the best Punisher, the worst Punisher stories, none of them quite read like G.I. Joe. Mm. A- any era, like Special Missions or the Marvel run or the IDW run. And, and even when an issue is uh, not my favorite or uh, less satisfying, I tell myself um, there is no other comic like this being published. It's it's true. There's there's nothing quite like it, and it's um, and it's the I think that's the reason that it's it's sort of resonated with you know so many to the degree it has, and it's you know essentially the the only you know comic that that I feel like I absolutely have to have as a single issue still um, because of that. I think just the the specialness of all of those elements uh, uh, coming coming together. Uh, anything else we spotted? Um, I saw a few, on on the discussion there was a few people that commented on uh, on the torpedo that it's funny that he's in his scuba gear. Sort of it. I mean, it does look a lot like his his version one uniform without the the mask. But I'm I'm giving that a pass. I think I I can I can rationalise that as being a sneaky suit mission outfit that he wears that looks a lot like his scuba gear, but is just, you know, it's just his military sneaky togs, much like, you know, Snake Eyes's uh, costume would, would be. And it's, it's not, uh, it's not a wetsuit. So out of the water, Torpedo would look like Muskrat. And uh, in season two uh, of the TV show, wetsuit, uh, I think it's a ninja holiday wetsuits out of his wetsuit. Cause he's like out of the water and he's just wearing pants and a button up shirt and it's disappointing. Mm-hmm. And like I said, like I said before, um, 
Gung Ho would not be on Arctic missions. <laughs> like Gung Ho would be dressed up like all the Arctic guys. He'd have white pants and a giant white coat and a giant white hat. And I don't want to see that. There is there is power in these iconic designs. And for that power to be maintained, the characters sh should be relatively consistently mm -hmm. presented. So, um, you know, like Batman isn't actually realistic, right? Like it's, to all, the, all the all the great pains that Batman Begins took yeah. to explain how this guy would work, like a grappling hook and a car and like fear and smoke. And he trained with this like mystical ninja guy. Um, like, no, like your third day, you'd break your ankle and then you couldn't do it for three <laughs> weeks or, or three months. Right. So like, like, I'm sorry, we have to we have to give all of this a pass. Like, I just want to see Torpedo in his wetsuit, whether it's <laughs> whether it's actually drawn like a thick wetsuit that's insulated or whether it's drawn more like a like snake eyes, a sneaky suit. I don't want to see Torpedo in like dressed up like Grunt. Sure. Yeah. And I think I think um, I think in previous issues, Torpedo has been shown in in the sort of like you say, a muskrat type uh, type type gear. So. It, it, but but yeah, in the last few times that he's appeared, he has been in his wetsuit uh, look style. So in the um, silent option and in Snake Hunt, he was uh, in this sort of similar look. Right. Um, uh, so yeah, so I guess they're porting back that look into into this um, Superman, story set in the past. Superman has red underwear on the outside because his costume is supposed to look like a circus strongman because mm -hmm. that's what the character is referring to visually in 1938 and 75 years later when they take away the red underwear logically in the movie and in the comics logically it makes sense he wouldn't wear that <laughs> but but from a costume design perspective the costume is now out of balance there's too yeah. much blue yeah and you need that red in the middle to break it up and the gi joe designs sort of on the whole like as a grouping they're perfect and you don't really need to mess with them yeah at least i mean at least he's not wearing his uh flippers <laughs> unlike uh unlike his early appearance when he was uh oh what was it called it the um fort knox i think it was that they were they were <laughs> at uh when uh yeah he, uh, he appeared in full flippers as as well uh let's move on um we've got more strong female characters so uh two strong female characters here in a in a lead role and i think it is clearly something that that larry's embracing we've had um layla the scavenger in uh, snake in the grass not too long ago we had katya the darklonian resistance uh leader uh and you know he's sort of really been embracing those characters like uh, uh bomb strike and helix and uh, you know jinx granny uh dawn uh laura I could go on, but uh, uh, yeah, we've we've got a we've got another uh, strong female who uh, is not incapable of uh, taking down uh, entire squads of uh, of uh, uh, the baddies with her uh, special military knife, which is another Larry uh, Larryism. There, we've got a shout out to uh, to her blade. Let me find it. A knife is not a spent spat spent. Spetnats. Spetnats. That's yeah. What, that's what I said. Spetnats. What um, page you on? Uh, it's the one where they're in the uh, drainage tunnel. Oh, spetsnats. 
Yes. So it wasn't a, not a Spetsnaz knife um, that she was holding, the one that shoots out the blade. Uh, let's get that one clear. Actually, I looked that up on that, uh, and there's some very cool YouTube videos. It's a knife. You sort of, uh, you know, there's a button there. You press it. The blade shoots out. It can, you know, penetrate through a drinks can and come out the other side. Uh, very uh, cool and destructive. It's not that. Let's be clear. It's a FSB Lynx 4 tactical knife. Uh, it's uh, only the elites got those. And uh, yeah, very good for taking out the bad guys in a drainage tunnel at night. I think it's uh especially it's, it's, it's a knife uh, good for that like just like there's certain pens that are good for drawing uh horses um <laughs> and uh did you notice there that they're in their first appearance when they were they were there uh sort of uh not sneaking up on the joes but being relatively unaware to, to the to the joes uh they looked somewhat like uh rock on and stone dar from uh he-man there as they <laughs> as they come up from the ground I was actually thinking in that panel where they where they where they pop up. This is page one, two, three, four. Um, I was thinking of the Rock Lords from mm, Gobots, yeah. and this is this is in no way a swipe at any of the people who made this fine comic book. This is just <laughs> if I see someone who is hiding as a rock and they stand up and they have like a stuffed rock on their back, yeah. I'm going to think that's where oh, we're going to go. That's like that toy <laughs> that folds and then it's a rock. Um, back to your point about um, Hama putting in more women characters. Um, you know, we see this push in in a lot of comics publishing in the last 10 years. And I think it's worth spending a moment on because um, I have a friend who's female and who draws for Marvel. And um, uh, I think it was... Seven years ago, Marvel was publishing zero mm. monthly comics with female protagonists. And then a couple books started, like Miss Marvel and The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl and um, Ironheart. The... Is it? Yeah, and and I mean that's that's jumping even much more recently, but yes. And um like Three, four years later, they were now like... And Captain 10. Marvel, of course. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, but, you know, suddenly they went from zero to like 10. And um, that's really important because the readership wants to see itself, mm -hmm. right? Like as a white male, I always see myself in movies and comics and toys. And if I wasn't a white male, right? It's like I knew a girl in high school um, who loved G.I. Joe. And she thought Scarlet was a badass. And she said that thing that has come up a couple times, I think in the letters page, it's like, well, why did you like G.I. Joe? And she said, uh, well, the women were treated the same. Like mm. it's just, if they're just one of the, just part of the team, just get doing the mission. And um, and I, I think with with more women showing up uh, in, in the G.I. Joe storyline, it can look to someone who's cynical about this and I'm not, it can look like, Oh, well, the writer or the publisher are like giving into pressure. They're being politically correct. I don't think it's that at all. I think they are making the book look more like the audience and like these two women, as soon as I saw them, right. I thought, Oh, this is like women in the Israeli defense forces in Israel. This is one of the only armies in the Western world in which women are drafted mm. into the military. Women in Israel have to serve in the military by law and they're in combat. 
right? And this was like decades before America's like, can we make women combat <laughs> soldiers? Like, like they're they're weaker, they're not as fast. It's like, can they be firefighters? Can they be football players? Right? It's like enough. Enough. It's like <laughs> this this argument was over a long time ago. And women wanting to serve in the military, and then like women in the military being visible and uh, inspiring or just making it seem possible to younger women, like that might, that might, that's something that they might want to do. Like that, that's going to take a little while, but like, like we should, we should start to be at the point now where this page, where these two women soldiers, these freedom fighters pop up, like we shouldn't be surprised anymore. Like, oh my goodness, out of these two characters that are soldiers, both of them are women. It's like, yep. Yeah, it's, and it, I'm not saying it's it's a it's a bad thing or something necessarily. Should be surprised by, it, but it's it's an observation that uh, that Larry is definitely uh, sort of you know enjoying and embracing that element of of having strong female characters and and you know has really um, since you know since that original run and in and in this one and particularly the the more recent years of of this run you know, really focused in on that part of the cast and, and, you know, continuing to, to build it out and, and introduce new characters. I think, you know, the first, the first 155 issues, we really, you know, we had Scarlet, uh, you know, a little bit of Lady J here and here and there, uh, Zorana, uh, Baroness, um, yeah, Dr. Burkhart, I suppose, but, but yeah, not, not necessarily huge amounts, um, you know, I'm, that's definitely not an exhaustive list, but uh, but but it feels like we're we're it is it is more of a concerted push uh, in 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 the uh, in the recent years on on this particular book. Agreed, agreed. Um. So, what else was there? Anything else that uh, that jumped out for you in this issue? There's a sound effect on the last page that's too dark, <laughs> and I I can't read it. All right. Uh, on the first panel. Uh, the first panel of the final page, I think it's Wham. I think it's oh, W. Good spot. W H A M M. Yeah. And uh, that the, threw me. I did not know what that was. The, yeah. the fill color. I think the fill color is supposed to be yellow, and the outline is, of course, supposed to be black. And mm. it's because there's an explosion. And uh, uh, I, I feel like this is just a small technical glitch. Yeah somewhere in the process um i don't think someone would like choose to make that um uh look that way the um i thought it was i thought it was like planks of wood being thrown by the explosion or something i just couldn't i couldn't make it out at all yeah because there's a metal door uh just above and to the right of it that is being thrown away from the explosion um my my other sort of overall thought about this issue is that um comic books used to be 22 pages Mm-hmm. and uh comic books now are 20 yeah and when dc made the switch and i want to say it was 2011 but i could be wrong i noticed it i would get to the end of the comic and i would think huh that that felt just a little short i felt mm. like not one more major thing would happen but like one more wrinkle to this explanation or like the epilogue would just get a little more to it and and the the analog i have is like you know i'm I'm watching a tv show an hour-long tv show and without ads it's like 44 minutes and then i watch star trek the original series and without ads it's like 52 minutes Mm. and so i'm watching a a star trek episode 
And at like minute 39, I start to feel, oh, they need to wrap this up because this <laughs> is going to be over soon. And with Star Trek, the original series, it's like, no, they're still introducing problems and very casually having these charismatic protagonists like talk about it. Like, what do we do? Spock, it's captain, something new. Like, oh my God. It's like suddenly there's an act four uh, to the story. And uh, with this issue, uh, when I turned from the second to the last page to the final page, and I realized the story was over, I thought, okay, this is one of the cases where I I feel that this is shorter than a lot of G.I. Joe stories because it's 20 pages and not 22 pages. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't want to say that the ending is rushed. I don't think it is. I think I think where it cuts off is actually quite dramatic. I think in another universe where this story is 22 pages, there might be like one more scene after this where the Joes remark how like once again, they're getting the short end of the stick mm -hmm. or um, I feel like sort of two pages earlier, like when the Joes make it into the base or into the, like by the nuclear smokestack and they see Han Zucker and Snake Eyes climbs up the scaffolding and then there's this final showdown with Zara and Hansucker and the grenade. I feel like in another universe, that scene would play out with a little more uh, breathing room. Mm -hmm. So not a bad thing. Uh, I, I, cer I certainly want my comics to be longer. I want all 20 pages to be 22, but something that I noticed. Let's move on to some typical hammerisms as we do hammer time. Stop, hammer time. Time to beat the soles of your boots with my face. Sucking chest wounds, red ninjas, brain scanners, rubber hooses, blue ninjas. And some more sucking chest wounds. Hammer time. So the hammerisms I noticed were coming thick and fast. Uh, we had D-Bus, Charlie Mike, Go South, uh, all on the first two pages. Uh, just in terms of the the you know typical Har Larry Hammerisms for turns of phrases, and then uh, later on in the story we talked we heard Scarlet talking about that maybe they'll put a copy in the box with your medals in that safe three levels down under the Pentagon. Yeah, the poor Joes they never get to see their medals; they're just stored away in a box <laughs> somewhere that they can't get to. Um, I didn't. Uh, I terms didn't jump out at me. But uh, what you already referred to, the Spetsnaz knife, like, no, no, it's an FSB for tactical <laughs> knife, right? Like spending, um, spending one and a half panels of dialogue on this very specific gear yeah. uh, strikes me as a, as a Hamaism. But then for it sure. ends up being actually about character and story. It's like, wait, is she, she violating the Geneva Convention by using <laughs> this outlawed knife it's like well are we gonna stop her it's like does she deserve to mm -hmm. um and then on the previous page see that drainage pipe i see snake eyes he's prying open the grate with the hydraulic jack from the btr right so snake eyes has this red cylinder it looks yeah. like a fire extinguisher and they're in front of a sewer gate and unlike every movie we've ever seen this sewer gate is not a wide open circle right there <laughs> are, it looks like venetian blinds in front of it uh there are horizontal metal pieces keeping them from getting in and snake yeah. eyes is using this this thing to bend the things out of shape so they can get in and like what i was saying before about there's no comic like this comic it, you wouldn't see that in an issue of punisher you certainly wouldn't see it in an issue of avengers <laughs> no. right it's, it's like no, no like tony stark is building like 
Iron Man armor that like circles the earth, right? So we're not going to spend two panels on like, how do we get into this sewer? Very good. There used to be a pudding that was over egged. You know the pudding. You know the pudding. At first it was British, but then it was Commonwealth. You know the pudding. You know the pudding. But now there's a new player in town. A comic book writer of of some renown. He's using real world examples and peppering the issues with with lots of samples. It's a Larry Hammer colloquialism. He's talking G.I. Joe and all its heroism. Can you guess what it is? Is it something new? Now listen as Larry drops a slice of real life on you. Um, and then colloquialisms. Did you encounter any uh, interesting uh, colloquialisms that are worth highlighting? No, but I, I admit I'm new to collecting these as I read, so I'll refer <laughs> to you. So the one that I spotted this issue was the turn of phrase, the Israeli burp gun, um, which, of course, is referring to uh, Snake Eyes' Uzi, uh, and uh, that phrase, burp gun, is uh, so-called because of its high fire rate. Uh, the Russian PPSH-41 is the most famous burp gun by the sounds of things. But yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting uh, turn, of, uh, turn of phrase and uh, very evocative. <laughs> and uh, as you say, it's the kind of thing that we won't get in any other comic apart from G.I. Joe. Um, did you have a particular favourite line of dialogue that stood out? Favourite line of dialogue. Right after they've met, the, the, the insertion team has met uh, Aman and Zara, mm -hmm. and um, uh, the two women are talking about, they're, they're subtly referring to how they took out the, the bad guys that were going to meet and ambush the Joes. Stalker says, did you, take, did you two take out the whole squad by yourselves? And Aman says, they were overconfident and complacent. Stalker says, you're tougher than you look. And then Zara says, when we have to be. And um, Diaz draws a really nice bit of acting here where mm -hmm. uh, Zara's eyebrows are up. Um, she's sort of nodding her head a little bit and her hand, her palm is up and her fingers are splayed. No, 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 no. Right. They're like, uh, <laughs> the, hand gest the hand gesture you'd make. And it is a, it is a small moment of levity in a, not quite grim, but a serious story. And it's a nice counterbalance where these two women freedom fighters who are like upset about Scoop and are like out for revenge uh, and are like probably upset that they have to rely on some Americans to help them, but glad for the assistance. Um, it's not a joke, but it it reads a little bit like a punchline. But it's also, <laughs> it's also at the same time, a calm and cool, uh, admission that they're excellent at what they do and <laughs> what they do is not very nice so i think it's a i think it's a line that speaks volumes maybe a little bit flirtatious as well i'm not sure <laughs> you think possible uh, possible yeah i think i had I, I had the the same character later on in the in the book was probably my possibly my favorite line or, or one not a, a line that we've not mentioned before anyway which was uh, once once they fi find out about uh, Zara's 
motivations that uh, the stalker, you know, is a little bit agitated, as you, you might expect. And he says, what? You should have told us. And, uh, and there's the reply, who am I to deny her her righteous retribution? Uh, it's, yeah, Larry's got, a, Larry's got a good turn of phrase. I like it. I just want to pop out for a second and, and encourage everyone who's listening to this. If you get your G.I. Joe jollies from listening to Mark and friends talk about the comic, but you don't buy and read the comic, buy and read this comic. I agree. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would, I would, all, I would hope that that most of uh, most of our listeners are reading uh, as we're going along and and able to uh, sort of add some extra depth because you know our description of the comic, you know, will, will always be uh, a shadow of actually. The, uh, you know, reading the thing and enjoying these, the, the detail of the story and the art it, itself. Um, you know, I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't uh, didn't enjoy reading it and uh, and discussing it. So, yeah, please do. Who is the MVP? Most valuable person in these issues. Who is the MVP? Is it a culprit, Joe, or the enemy? So uh, we've got MVP, most valuable player in these these issues. Who was who was your favorite character? Did anyone stick out? Uh, Zara. Uh, it, it's a it's a an attribute of this series that it is some of the characters who only show up for just one issue that are the most memorable. Sometimes because they are killed or they sacrifice themselves, but. And maybe we don't come in with any with any baggage. You know, I see Scoop and I want him to be an excellent videographer, but also get a chance to do something cool in combat and mm-hmm. to prove to all the other fans who think that he's lame, that he's not lame, right? And that, that expectation bogs me down because, you know, there, there are 10 characters in this comic and that's, that's a lot to ask. <laughs> um, but, you know, Zara has this tragic backstory. It's a reveal late in the book, early on we establish that she and her fellow fighter are um, badasses. She speaks two languages, right? Uh, she sacrifices herself. Zara. Yep. With you all the way on that one. It's, uh, yeah, it's the standout for sure. And poor old Scoop, you know, maybe partly his inclusion there was to be the kind of the weak link in the in the chain because one of the main things that does happen with him is that he's the one who uh, is overpowered and... Uh, you know, gets his gun grabbed off of him. So, uh, yeah, poor old Scoop. I don't think, uh, <laughs> I don't think, uh, he was necessarily the, the most combat ready of, uh, of all of the GHOs on this one, but I, uh, I will hope for, maybe there'll be a run of issues after 300 with some self-contained stories and maybe Scoop can show up again and, uh, be the, be the hero and the expert uh, <laughs> of another G.I. Joe story. Uh, When that happened, when he gets his gun grabbed off him, I thought, oh, man, like, oh, poor Scoop. Mm. Does Larry have something against Scoop? Um, But, you know, what I remind myself with these characters is that they are all, all the Joes are the best of the best of the best. Yeah. And so realistically, they they, very few of them would um, would make mistakes. Uh, I know things go wrong on missions. But at the same time, if all of them are perfect, there's no drama in the story. So uh, occasionally someone's going to have to make a mistake and it should mean something. And I don't know that it should, you know, like if Snake Eyes made a mistake, 
someone might say, well, Snake Eyes never makes a mistake. Or <laughs> someone would say, yeah, I mean, but Snake Eyes does so many cool things. This is okay. And Scoop has only ever had opportunity to do like five or six things. Yeah. So now a larger percentage of his quote on-screen G.I. Joe performance is this mistake. Um, yeah, yeah. But it, it, you know, this mistake also drives the final drama of the of the story. Yeah, and when you've got when you've got a team of four of Larry's favorite characters who are all ultra tough badasses plus Scoop, um, it's it's you know a bit a bit harsh on uh, Scoop, <laughs> I would say. Just before we do our rating, our Yo Joeage, um, one one interesting thing there was actually that in the letters page, uh, Larry gave a shout out and and said that I've been feeling re-energized lately, and the Untold Tales arc is sparking my imaginations. Which you know, I think uh, the uh, it's sort of slight undertone of that is possibly that previously he was not quite as energized and maybe lacking in imaginative sparks a little bit. Uh, but but yeah, good to good to hear that that uh, it's getting his uh, getting imagination and uh, sparks flying. Uh, very good. I, I think it's I think it's also worth noting that um, much of Snake Hunt was written and drawn during COVID particularly the lockdown and you know like this affects everything mm. like every creative endeavor you know, like i was teaching during the lockdown and besides the fact that it was harder because i had to move my teaching remotely and and my students were all accessing these lessons on their computer we weren't in the same room together you know it's it's okay if everyone's a little depressed for some of 2020 because the world just got a lot harder. Mm. And so, you know, when I am being a cranky comic book reader, like my art, my favorite artist did five issues in a row of this comic, and then they missed half an issue. What's <laughs> their problem, right? It's like, well, maybe they got the flu or maybe mm. their like mom died and they like had to take a week off or maybe they deserved a vacation and the editor had forgotten to line up someone else. Maybe it's not the artist's fault. So. I do also perhaps read into your observation here that not just that Larry is excited about Unhold Tales, maybe Larry was a little less excited about Snake Hunt, but mm. also I'm, I'm going to give a lot of creatives a, a, a little extra leeway in the, of the last year. You know, like, was it, was it hard to write Snake Hunt when like you didn't know if your publisher was going to go out of business because for two months they couldn't publish anything because the distributor stopped distributing comics and so the stores couldn't sell new comics mm, mm. like that, that that might affect uh you know like I, this is not the best uh uh um parallel but you know, i i don't love frank miller's dark knight strikes again his sequel to the dark knight returns um but that story changed drastically halfway through because he'd already written and drawn the first half of it and then september 11th happened and it became a very different story so I don't know that Snake Hunt changed in any way that we could notice because mm. making it changed, um, you know, the, the editor was already going to be getting like digital files and email with the writer and the artists, right? It's not like they were all working in the same room together and then they couldn't. That wasn't what, what the change was. But, you know, it's suddenly in March, April, May, June of 2020, you got to worry about going out to buy groceries, um, yeah, actually, in uh, the Robert Atkins interview I did um, with him, he talked about some of that creative process, and and it was literally, you know, almost half, halfway into Snake Hunt when uh, IDW gave the pens down order, 
And uh, yeah, they, they, that was it. He wasn't allowed to do any more work and he didn't have a script to, to work from uh, and none was forthcoming. So, so all of that time wasn't able to be used as a sort of a creative time or, and, and, you know, ability to act as a buffer to, to, you know, do some of that, that work. So they, you know, when, uh, when they did, were told they could start working again, it was right up against uh, the deadlines, unfortunately. But uh, um, yeah, quietly, quite, yeah. So, so Larry would have been still, yeah, mid, mid, uh, mid writing in that, in that stage. So, so those, that second part of Snake Hunt would be, would have been written in a post COVID, uh, COVID world. Right. Interesting. Should we talk about toys? Yes. Mark talks about toys. Ho, ho. He talks about G.I. Joe. He talks about all the toys from the comic book and the animated show. Mark talks about toys. Mark talks about toys. So have you chosen a toy to talk about? Shall I guess? <laughs> well, my, my co-host was hoping I would pick Scoop. So I Shh, Scoop. Sh- don't tell them. Did you pick <laughs> Scoop? I did. Yeah, I guessed right. <laughs> so what, what can you tell me about Scoop? Uh... Scoop is sculpted in the likeness of uh, an NBC news reporter, right? Ah. Scoop is Scoop is a real person. This is, um, you know, a lot of the uh, early GI Joe figures, first couple years, uh, aren't real people. A few of them are, and then mid- midway through the toy line, most of them became likenesses of people at Hasbro. Uh, Scoop is. Um, in the likeness of an NBC news reporter who had done some favorable uh, coverage of Hasbro uh, for the Today Show, and um, so if you know if you're looking at the figure and you're thinking this sort of looks like someone, it's like they're they're like making a face as opposed to I don't know like mm, yeah, there's road, like a road, distinct road, expression there, isn't there? Yeah, like you know, Roadblock version one, you know, like that's that's just a that's just anyone. That's just that that face doesn't. Um, anyway, so um, uh, I was immediately struck when I saw Scoop uh, for sale because he comes with a lot of stuff, and that was uh, eighty nine, like eighty eight, eighty nine. The Joes, to my eye, started to come with a lot more stuff. Mm. So you're getting more bang for your buck, and. Um, I don't think I would have loved the character had he not gotten such a prominent role in Operation Dragonfire, the first five Deke episodes that ran in mm-hmm. September of 89. Um, and he's used to great effect there, both as a sort of character in the conflict and also as a reporter. Um, um, the, the yellow and the green for me have always been a little too bright. Um, but, uh, he has a cool helmet, which takes (laughs) some of, takes some of the edge off. And in 1989, I was making movies with a video camera with friends at school. And so the fact that a Joe comes with a video camera was a neat, uh, parallel. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting stuff. I was just looking up on, uh, the, the details there and actually see on Yojo, it talks about the, uh, the fact that for Scoop, it was NBC television news reporter, Mike Leonard, Leonard, who was used to model the figure after. And the character of the Scoop was given the real name, Leonard Michaels. So sort of, yeah, switching around surname and, uh, and, uh, uh, first name. So that's uh, quite, uh, quite cool. 
Uh, let's have a look at this guy. So he's from Chicago, Illinois. He's a journalist. He's a microwave transmission specialist. It's a secondary specialty. Interesting. It takes a special kind of guy to step out from behind cover during a firefight and keep his finger squeezing the trigger of his video cam. With an advanced degree in journalism, as well as a master's degree in electrical engineering, Scoop could have had a secure future with a network news team. Instead, he opted for service on the G.I. Joe team because he wanted to be on the spot when news was being made, not reporting the aftermath. The other G.I. Joes were a bit put off by Scoop at first. They resented having a third wheel tagging along, lugging 60 pounds of video equipment and not much firepower. They changed their minds after he carried a wounded comrade two clicks to an extremely hairy evacuation site for a medivac, all the while while his camera captured the whole thing on tape. Now that's called doing your job and then some. And actually sort of looking at this guy as we're talking, thinking about him, he's, he's, probably, uh, he's probably kind of in the scrap pile in terms of a speciality because I guess in this uh, modern era with uh, camera technology being that much smaller, it's common practice now for military personnel and, and police personnel and so on to have body cams, you know, on their helmet or on the, on their torso somewhere where it's uh, sort of filming as they go. So, so possibly that role of a dedicated uh, on-the-spot video man with his uh, 60 pounds of equipment, was it, is a, a little bit uh, redundant. Oh, dear. I can imagine a not knowing how modern military missions are fully uh, recorded. I can imagine... Uh, so, yes, you'd have a body cam on everyone on a mission. I can imagine still wanting to have uh, an expert photographer or journalist who might have more than one camera on their person, or it might be a very, very small smartphone type camera like in mm. one hand who is going to um, choose to get better compositions than yeah, yeah. all these cameras that are just on some guy's shoulder. Yeah, um, frame so, a shot. <laughs> yeah, or someone who, because he's a photojournalist or some kind of reporter, uh, has a different angle, has a different point of view on sort of who to talk to or what questions to ask or um, sort of where to stand aside when the the mm -hmm. more active military people are, are, are engaging in the mission. But in terms of, you know, this giant backpack that he has and, and your comment that, um, you know, he might not have much of a, a job to do on G.I. Joe in 2020. Again, I feel like there's this sliding scale, you know, like gung-ho doesn't have a shirt. <laughs> and, you know, in G.I. Joe, they used to talk about Vietnam and now they talk about like the Southeast Asian conflict. Mm -hmm. Yep. And, you know, it's like that Simpsons line where Lisa observes to Bart that uh, sort of once a week their lives get crazy and then things sort of res <laughs> reset and then a week later it happens again. Yeah. So. So, yeah, there we go. But Scoop, yeah, he's a nice guy. He's, uh, I've, I think I've got a somewhat of a, a affection for, for, for this guy, uh, despite despite all of the things that might ordinary, uh, ordinarily uh, sort of, yeah, put me a yeah make make me a somewhat less somewhat less of a favorite. Uh, he he's he's crazy gaudy, but somehow somehow it works. Imagine if our first exposure to this character had been 
the story of that anecdote from the dossier. If before we saw the toy, mm -hmm. we read a story where he carried a wounded Joe two kilometers and still videotaped the whole thing, right? Scoop would all be our second favorite character. <laughs> yeah, already already going in with a bit of love for, for him. I get it. Good stuff. Uh, and and not only have you picked the picked in inverted commas the one that I've told you to pick, but not only have you picked the character for the for the toy, but you've also uh, looked out for some primo licensing uh, merchandise. You know, GI Joe ain't just toys, funny books, and tunes. Those guys will license anything. So funky, so nice, G.I. Joe merchandise. Do you need it? Sure you do, it's G.I. Joe branded, fool. What shall we make? We can't decide. Pick some old crap and put Flint's face on the side. On the side. T-shirts, funkers, sticker shampoo, lunchbox soap, jackets, underoos. Yeah, that's right, I said underoos. Badges, brushes, combs and mugs, telephones, tissues and probably hugs. Hot damn, G.I. Joe hugs? Radios, candy, tense tattoos, with a G.I. Joe logo they just can't lose. Door knocker, doorbell, even doormat, they're probably brand your dog and your cat. So funky, so nice, it's G.I. Joe merchandise. Do you need it? Sure you do, it's G.I. Joe branded, fool. What shall we make? We can't decide. Pick some old crap and put Flint's face on the side. It's G.I. Joe merchandise. Yeah, um, this sound that you hear. Uh, this is the sound of a G.I. Joe mini viewer. There were six of them. They were released in 2004. Uh, by Tomy, and uh, when they're uh, they're about the size they're they're if you had a very very large hand they're about the size of uh, half of your thumb and <laughs> um, they were uh, they were released in vending machines and it's it's a it's a basically a miniature viewmaster so there's a button and you push it down with your index finger and uh, you hold your eye up to the tiny viewfinder and inside um, you see one of six uh, comic adventures. Um, these were the, these were the pack-in comics that came in the 2004 uh, G.I. Joe toy line. They were, they were yep. written, they were written by Larry Hama. Uh, the artists, I think, were not credited, and I think these comics were the back of the cross sell, the like fold, the fold out catalog uh, mm -hmm. for the year. Um, yeah, my, there was, yeah, sort of like a weird format for the comic because it's kind of like a, a like a fold out poster, the, the type of thing that would have come and maybe s highlighted some figures and stuff previously. But it's yeah, it's got kind of yeah a comic strip on it instead. So uh, each of these has a keychain, so you can hang this little you know, supermarket or toy store vending machine uh, <laughs> toy on your, on your, uh, your key ring. Um, I love this for several reasons. Uh, one, um, 
view view masters right and for those of you i hope you all know right it's this toy from decades ago where uh you hold it up to both eyes and you put in a disc and there are um yeah there are tiny pieces of film on a circle and you click the button and it rotates it and you see in binocular vision uh mm. a, a scene uh and some of them in the i think yeah, it's almost starting... like yeah almost 3d because of that binocular vision effect i actually had the uh a Viewmaster, and I had the G.I. Joe story, uh, Hot Potato, with it. Okay, so I, want, I wanted to ask, is it, it was images from the comic, not from the show? Uh, this was specifically, uh, yeah, the story Hot Potato, which appeared as the backup story in issue one of G.I. Joe. Right. Uh, often not reprinted, IDW. Uh, <laughs> and, and there were uh, G.I. Joe Viewmaster reels uh, for Adventure Team in the 70s. And uh-huh. uh, when, when it's photography... Uh, when it's like three-dimensional, like Snoopy or Flintstones characters in a little diorama, that is binocular. Um, and when it's when it's a flat image, the effect is a little bit less. Um, but uh, so this uh, <laughs> um, this so the one I'm specifically looking at is uh, bombs bursting in air, which I think was the first comic for that uh, mm-hmm. run because. I think they're numbered like part one, part two, or they seem okay. to be to be continued. Um, I don't. Uh, two thousand four, the GI Joe toy line. I, I don't have a lot of knowledge about because that was when I was um, paying less attention. Right, uh, spy troops and uh, Valor versus Venom. And sure. Yeah. That, yeah, that yeah. transition time leading up to two thousand seven. But um, I like the comic because it's written by Larry Hama. Uh, the artwork is nice, um, but it's it's that style where everyone looks very very young. Um, mm-hmm. but the effect that you get when it's printed, not on paper, but on transparent plastic and to, to, you hold it up to a window or a light, the images are backlit. And so it's much more like looking at a slideshow, looking at a movie, looking at a TV show where it, mm. it, it glows and the, the color schemes, um, it's not Technicolor, right? It is. It is absolutely not Technicolor, but the palette leans a little bit more towards that because it is film, and not um, ink on paper. And the comic has uh, the word balloons and the sound effects um, stripped. So uh, let's see. All right. So yeah. the first first one is a is a plane coming at us. Some you know, uh, cool two thousand four GI Joe jet. And then inside we see uh, Duke and someone, uh, piloting the plane. And then we see, uh, a, a black plane coming after them or they're chasing. It's probably Cobra. And then <laughs> Duke has jumped, uh, to the Cobra plane from the Joe plane with its cockpit open. Oh, he has an American flag tattoo on his bicep. And then we see Cobra commander and, uh, the Baroness, uh, inside a cockpit and he's shaking his fists. And then, uh, he's pointing down at Duke, who's uh, just gotten on board, and we see the Joe plane <laughs> flying away. And then the two of them are fighting on a missile, I guess, in the launch bay. And then Cobra Commander kicks uh, Duke, and there's a really gorgeous purple background. And then uh, the missile launches, Duke falls off, Cobra Commander is uh, uh, not in the way of the blast. Uh, and then uh, this one actually has two panels. Uh, Duke. Uh, you can't see it. I think it's cropped, but I think he's got a, uh, a parachute and he's mm-hmm. firing a pistol and it's hitting the missile. And then in the final panel, we're on the ground. A Joe's holding a flag. Four Joes are saluting and there's an explosion in the air. And Duke 
is parachuting in front of all five of these Joes and there's Joe base behind them and there's a helicopter on top of the base. <laughs> uh, oh, and then there's a final panel that says the end, Baroness is looking at Cobra Commander and he's shaking his fist. Very good. I love it. Uh, the other reason why I love this is that in my history of animation class, uh, on the first day of class, we talk about um, optical devices and toys that predate film. So things mm -hmm. before 1895, like zoetropes and phenakistoscopes. Yeah. And um, even though this specific object is from 2004, uh, it is it is trading in that kind of uh, mm. optical phenomenon where you are telling a story through images uh, and it's not yet like moving film, like one frame at a time. So this mm. specific object I bring into my class the first day, along with a bunch of other <laughs> bunch of other show and tell objects, and I, I pass them around and I, I have my pieces of film, 16 millimeter film and 35 millimeter film and 70 millimeter film and uh, this is one of the things I pass around. So it is both uh, a fun G.I. Joe bit of merch. It is also a teaching tool. Excellent, because every day is a school day. And more than anything else, it just looks so darn cute. Just look at it. It's so dinky. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I guess uh, looking at uh, Yo Joe, the others are uh, Ninja Showdown, Spy Troops, Roadblock Gets Heavy, Tanks <laughs> for Nothing, and face to face and uh yeah. i should probably get the other five <laughs> it sounds like you'll bring a lot of joy <laughs> brilliant thanks for that one i've never i had that one had never been on my radar not i was not aware of that one before you uh before you showed it so uh that is great uh and now let's time <laughs> let's uh, turn to my brand new feature and you are going to be the uh Guinea pig, uh, unveiling it upon the world. Excellent. Attention. At this moment, you are now listening to Talking Innuendo. If you are offended by words like Sucking. Flesh wound. Willy. Pete. Balls. Crystal balls. Hypno shield. Whatever. Take the tape out now. This is not a pop album. And by the way, Suck my grandmother's brick in a Prada handbag. So this new segment is called Innuendo. Um, <laughs> and basically, if you're in the right frame of mind or the wrong frame of mind or specifically my frame of mind, you know, most of the G.I. Joe names just sound pretty dirty. <laughs> So, you know, you wonder as they were filling out their, their code, their, you know, their HR record with their, their new code name in that, in that box that goes there, you, you wonder whether, whether they thought, do, you know, do I want to saddle myself with this name maybe, or do I, do I want to think about it again? Um, so, so yeah, it's for voyage into, into, to my mind and what makes, uh, makes me laugh and tick. So, uh, my challenge is, can I get through uh, a list of 10 dirty sounding G.I. Joe names without making my co-host, a.k.a. you, uh, titter. That's right, titter. Uh, and that's, uh, that's an indicator of the kind of level of maturity of uh, this segment. Should I, should I <laughs> warn you or our listeners ahead of time that I take G.I. Joe very seriously? <laughs> So it might be that you're not the most receptive audience for this, but uh, but we'll see. Are you, well, are, you, are, you, are you steeled for it? Do you think you can cope? 
I I I want to play along, and I I don't want to be a spoil sport, so I'm ready. <laughs> okay. Skidmark. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think I'm, I'm only get closer to a guffaw before we before we stop on this. Wasn't wasn't Skidmark also an Autobot? I think he uh, was. I, yeah, I think he might have been. I yeah, think yeah, in yeah. Generation Two. And in the UK it was I think named renamed uh, Treadmark because in the UK it just you know it just means soiled Grundies. Smart. Say. Smart. Okay, so Skidmark, Blowtorch, Snow Job, uh, and can you imagine if uh, Snow Job and Blowtorch got married and Blowtorch had to take uh, Snow Job's last name? I I would read that story. <laughs> Backblast, Big Lob, Beachhead, Hardmaster, <laughs> Softmaster, oh, unfortunate, Night Creeper, Big Boa. Oh, I think I got through all ten without without too too much, uh, much more than a, the level of a titter. There wasn't. It didn't feel like there was a guffaw there, unfortunately. But. Um, if if you had done it in the opposite order, I think if you'd built up to Skidmark, <laughs> um, because uh, so Snow Job, I have I have steeled myself against, and I think mm-hmm. once or twice online, I have wagged my finger at sort of lazy. Non GI Joe fans who are like, ha ha, snow job. It's like, no, that's a military term, you jerk. Um, <laughs> like, don't don't insult my toy. Um, whereas, uh, I think Skidmark showed up when I knew what it was. Whereas all these other names, my first exposure to them was like, no, no, this is this is a serious GI Joe guy, mm. and Skidmark. I think I think um, so. He's the he's the driver for the wonderful Desert Fox. My brother had that, so that figure was sort of nicely off limits for me. Generally, he played with his toys, and I played with mine. Though we played with them together, uh, but we had sort of this, we had the sense of ownership. Um, and like a lot of vehicle drivers, we didn't really have a personality. And like a lot of vehicle drivers that year, there's a lot of green and orange. Yeah, so a lot of orange. So he he got. He didn't get left out of games, but he's he's just sort of stuck in the driver's seat of the mm-hmm. Desert Fox. But I think as an Autobot, <laughs> right? Like He'd probably moment, be embarrassed to, to stand up just just in case what people spot as well, right? Uh, I hadn't I didn't realize the thing about Treadmark. That's 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 such a nice fix for the problem. But as an Autobot, I think the moment I saw that name, I thought that's too bad. Uh, so these other ones, I've I I don't want to say I came prepared to not guffaw, um, <laughs> but. Uh, but I, I take G.I. Joe very seriously. Okay. I've got a few more on my list, so may, maybe next time I'll be able to get one past you. Uh, I do like Inuen Joe. That's great. <laughs> I was pleased with that. Okay, so uh, next time on the ARA read-through, we will be moving up one issue and we'll be on the second part of Untold Tales uh, in issue 277 so uh read that ahead of the issue that is a law and order special i believe with brian shearer on the art chores but uh next time we will be moving into a new era of gi joe as well so 
we will be uh, me uh, Tim will be joining us and we'll have a new special co-host as as well uh, we will be looking at the devil's due era of the comics so we will be reading the first few issues of that I don't know if we'll cover one and two or maybe the first arc which is one through four so uh, if you read all four uh, you'll be ready uh, and you'll know what's going on because knowing as we say is half the battle so uh and we've also got a bonus episode of all jingles uh which may have already dropped at the point that this comes out you can find us in all the usual places talking joe a gi joe podcast on facebook talking underscore joe on twitter talking joe comics or one word on instagram and talking joe comics or one word at gmail.com uh where can people find you tim a real American book.com, Facebook.com slash a real American book, Instagram, a real American book. It's nothing if not consistent. <laughs> I just so, want to, I just want to thank Mark for inviting me in, not inviting me back, but also inviting me in uh, being co-host is, is quite an honor and I'm excited. And also thank you to the listeners uh, who are uh, getting used to uh, a, a different feel to the show chief was great and i wish him well uh, and i'm really glad to be part of this now so thank you all excellent it's nice to have you on board i'm delighted i think it's fair to say and uh, yeah we will see you next time but for now when all is said and done you can catch us down the road because we've been talking joe and we're all out of joes laters bye <laughs>